When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to another episode of Miami Nice. My name is Katie Walsh. I'm here with my partner in my Go Fast boat right next to me. It's 11.47 on a Saturday night. Mr. Blake Howard, how are you? Katie. I'm excited. I'm, this is uh, one of our bucket list guests that we're going to talk to today, so I'm, I, I couldn't be more thrilled. We do have a bucket list guest who has been referenced many times on this podcast. He is a legend. He is the professor of cinema and media studies and the Catherine and Frank Price Endowed Chair for the Study of Race and Popular Culture at the University of Southern California's School of Cinematic Arts, my alma mater, fight on, go Trojans. Um, he's a media commentator. You've seen him in probably every single documentary, including The Last Dance. He's an author, a producer, a consultant, and a scholar, and a screenwriter. The Wood. Uh, and he was my professor uh, in grad school for the class Reagan's America, Crack Nation, which is where I first saw Miami Vice, the movie. <laughs> the man, the myth, the legend, the notorious PhD. Dr. Todd Boyd is here today. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time out to talk to us about this movie. You obviously made a huge impression on me with this movie when you showed it <laughs> in class. Um, so I'm just going to start with a very simple question. Like when you, what was the first time you saw this? Did you see it when it came out? And what was the impression that it made on you? Um, you know, for me, uh, my connection to Miami Vice goes back to the TV show. Yeah, of uh, course. And um, you know, I was I was in college uh, when the TV show started, which was um, about a year or so after uh, Scarface had come out. And um, I went to undergrad at University of Florida, so I was sort of in the middle of all that. And, wow. Uh, wow. Going to Miami during that time very different than perhaps Miami is now. And in some ways, you know, Scarface and Miami Vice kind of helped change the uh, city and what people, you know, know now in some ways started at that moment. But, you know, this is the era when Time Magazine has that infamous cover of Paradise Lost talking about South Florida. Um, and so, you know, I like the TV show. I love the cameos. Um, you know, the music, 
the stories, um, you know, were often set in uh, drug world and um, Vice. It was just a cool network television show that might be a oxymoron. <laughs> it show. was at the time, um, but you know, <laughs> they I changed mean, things. This was uh, this was you know when there were still the three networks and cable was. Uh, you know, existent, but very different than it would become. And so to have a cool TV show on a network was unusual, but Miami Vice was cool. And so, you know, by the time the film came out, all those years later, um, I think I was anticipating what the film would be like because of uh, how much I appreciated the uh, TV show. And so, you know, I saw it. Um, I kind of felt like Michael Mann was... Uh, it's like he was punishing people who like the TV show. Like, I'm not going to give you what you came here for. I'm going to give you something else. But, yeah, my association starts with the TV show. And so seeing the movie when it came out was a, you know, kind of, of course, moment. No brainer. Yeah, but were you, so you, he was not giving you, as a fan of the TV show, what you wanted. But did you appreciate what you got? Or were, were you, like, disappointed when it, when it came out? I wouldn't say I was disappointed. But he was maybe doing a little bit too much. Um, it felt it felt like um, I, I don't know. I'm watching it, and I just kept thinking he knows how much some people really love the TV show, and he's enjoying punishing these people by not <laughs> like you know playing to that. But you know, on, on the same token, the film you know, came out a while after the TV show had been off the air. And so it's a new day and it's a new medium. It's film, you know, it's not television. Uh, it's not a weekly series. This was before, you know, streaming and you'd get these multiple episode uh, series, which could be interesting as an approach to Miami Vice, if you could do it that way. But I wouldn't say I was disappointed. I liked the vibe of the film, um, but I wanted more of the kind of vibe from the television show, and uh, clearly that was that was not the case. So, but when you were putting together your syllabus, and I just want to say, I also remember very vividly watching Scarface in your class. I'm obsessed with Scarface. Like, I think your class made me obsessed with Scarface. Um, but uh, when you were putting together the syllabus with these books, these hefty books like Nixonland, Dark Alliance, City of Courts, New Jim Crow, um, and then the the films, like when you were like, okay, I have to, and I know you played the pilot of the Miami Vice show, and then you played the movie that day in class. Um, what made you want to include it? Just like the fact that it was an updated version of, you know, this TV show or, you know, something to do with like the long lasting legacy of Reagan's drug policies. What was, why did you decide to put it on the syllabus? Well, um, I see you have a very good memory of that class. You <laughs> better than I do. Um, I was looking up the syllabus today. <laughs> But it did make a big impression on me, that class, it, for sure. I, I took that class in feminist theory the same semester. I was a monster that semester. <laughs> I was an asshole. <laughs> that's, that, that's quite a combination. Oh, <laughs> quite a combination. I was like, fuck everything. <laughs> <laughs> I can dig it. I, can yeah. dig it. <laughs> I think, um, you know, um, 
this is a project I've been working on a long time, but I was interested in sort of cultural history of the 80s, Reagan, drug culture, and all of the other things attached to it. Um, prison industrial complex, uh, gang culture, hip hop, um, you know, so many things that came from the so-called war on drugs. And, you know, um, I think there's a tradition that goes back to the early 70s with a film like Superfly. Mm -hmm. And so if you go forward from Superfly and you look at um, sort of drug cinema, for lack of a better description, Scarface, of course, is, you know, at the center of that. Um, you know, something like Goodfellas, um, you know, a lot of the uh, hip hop films, Boys and Menace from the 90s, um, other examples. Um, and so really just trying to put together a list of uh, films, Blow, the Johnny Depp film, um, you know, films that kind of center drug culture, particularly sort of cocaine and um, the era of the cartels, Pablo Escobar, and um, names like this, uh, something you would later see in a show like Narcos. Um, so, you know, I think uh, the class you took was probably before Narcos or right around the same time, but... Yeah, I think then, it was before. I think it was before. Um, but, you know, when I was thinking about putting it together, Miami Vice was something that I thought, well, even though the film may be a little different than the TV show, it kind of harkens back to that era when mm -hmm. you were looking at the connections between Reagan's foreign policy, the surge of cocaine in the country, um, and then, you know, everything that came with it. So Miami Vice to me seemed like an interesting choice. You know, I swap films out uh, on occasion and I'm not sure if I've shown that film again. Uh, not that I thought it was bad, but, um, you know, it kind of fit in with the overall representation of drugs and, you know, conservative politics under Reagan and how all those things connected. And I thought it was maybe a more recent um, representation of that because when did the film come out? 2006? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it was more recent than, say, Scarface or some of those older films from the mm -hmm. 80s. Um, and I thought might be an interesting way to see how the legacy of those films from the 70s and 80s and 90s had kind of, you know, lived on, but connected to a TV show itself that started in that era. Yeah, and I remember I was when I was looking at the syllabus, you also, I think the last stuff you showed was The Wire. Right. Which was... Um obviously more recent as well and kind of in that same era of Miami Vice. But um, what I was thinking, I was just sort of pondering, I'm like, what am I going to ask Dr. Boyd on this class, on this, um, you know, for this episode? And uh, what's interesting is like Miami Vice, the show is Reagan era. Miami Vice, the movie is Bush era. Mm -hmm. And I think so much of the movie is about surveillance. Yeah. In a way, I mean, it is about this this guy getting lost, uh, you know, as a, a you know undercover and and falling in love with this woman. But you know, there's all the little things that Justin Thoreau is doing and the cell phone jammers and 
um they reference like oh you don't see this kind of thing and what does what do they say blake like you this when they talking about the cell phone jammers like yeah, the high like, tech this, like this is the kind of shit that the cia cia does in baghdad like right they reference know, they, they iraq reference, and yeah um so and the wire is also about surveillance and police surveillance of drug dealers and stuff so i wonder if there's like that like it, the reagan era stuff was more about like the policies that allowed this to happen and then the bush era stuff is like how the government surveils criminal activity in a way i don't know there's just this was just sort of percolating in my head well i mean clearly the difference is uh, technology um yeah and so by 2006 you know um technology has really transformed our lives in a way that uh didn't exist in the eighties. Um, you know, the internet, um, 2006, of course, is, uh, before the iPhone, but you know, still people have cell phones and, um, you know, uh, invasion of, uh, Afghanistan followed by the invasion of Iraq. Um, you know, technology is so much more advanced and sophisticated. And at the same time, a part of kind of everyday American life. So it's, you know, operating, I think, um, at a institutional level in terms of the government, but it's also operating at a personal level. None of that existed in the 80s. So I think, you know, Reagan's foreign policy in Latin America, you know, Iran-Contra um, resulted in, um, you know, one aspect. And then you have some, you know, 20, or so years later, um, you know, the Bush administration, which was uh, focused on, you know, the invasion of Iraq and um, this era, you know, known as terrorism. Um, so different set of Republican politics, I guess. <laughs> yeah. um, by but the kind of like the same story, but just like a different, I don't know, similar, but different. <laughs> well, I think, uh, you know, by the 2000s, because of the prison industrial complex, uh, there was nobody left to throw in jail. Um, you know, they'd all <laughs> been thrown in jail. And so now it's like, we're moving on to bigger and better things. We're gonna, you know, invade a sovereign nation. And, um, you know, I mean, think about it. It's the beginning of the 20th, 21st century. And I think that really plays a role in what's going on today, even though people don't make those connections. Um, you know, Bush has been somewhat, uh, you know, what would I say, subtle, but quite clear in his criticism of Donald Trump. Uh, but in some ways, you don't get to Trump in 2016 without, you know, what happened in the election in 2000 and, uh, you know, what happened after 9-11. So I think when you think about technology, and the role that it just plays in our lives to the point that we don't even think about it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's necessary, right? You know, we're sitting here on a Zoom call, you know, five years ago, nobody knew what Zoom was. Uh, yeah. you know, a Commodore saw maybe, uh, but you know, <laughs> it's like, this is part of our life. And in some ways you can't really function without technology. So I think the film maybe speaks to that um, as well as the larger, um, sort of political issues that are rooted in different Republican regimes. I mean, you know, who was Reagan's vice president, George H.W. Bush, and then you get his son. Uh, so 
you know, you can draw a line, I think, between those decades. Yes, indeed. <laughs> there's there's something, Dr. Boyd, I wanted to talk to you about because it's like it's fascinating that you talk about this because um, cinematically, there, there's a great um, scholar called Susan Jeffords who did this piece called The Remasculinization of America, and it was kind of like the cinematic reaction, especially in action films and genre films, to like um, – and there's another really great show um, – that's being produced right now by a friend uh, of our show, Brian Raftery saying like, um, can we win this time? Which is about Vietnam war movies and us trying to retain, you know, the pop culture tangling with America's loss at Vietnam and then doing that. And then Susan Jeffords talks about the Reagan era. The difference between the Reagan era and the seventies is in first blood, you know, it's a crazed Vietnam vet who comes home and gets tortured by police because police are the least trustworthy things and they're apathetic and they're somewhat sociopathic. And then you get First Blood Part 2 and it's like one man right. goes back to Vietnam to right. kill everyone. <laughs> it's just right. like, it's it's that sort of thing. And so I think what you're talking about too, which I think Miami Vice fits in very nicely with The Wire, is it's almost anticipating this like socio-cultural rot that's going to manifest in the big collapse, you know, the, the 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 GFC, which is that you've got all this excess, and in the excess was sort of untamed in this TV series, and it kind of grew into the Reagan era. But I love in Miami Vice 2006 and in The Wire particularly is like the excess is there, but it's all all that flash underneath it is these people that are all struggling. And that are all like that that you know we're in trailer parks in miami vice and we're going to these third world countries and manipulating stuff so it's all this flashy excess but underneath there's a rot and i feel like the wire particularly because it lives through that right to that moment and this it's really interesting to show that like how how they've industrialized the drug war against the united states because as you said everyone else was in jail right i mean the wire of course uh classic of uh I mean, what do we call it? Television, I guess, in the broadest sense, but yeah. certainly uh, that moment, you know, when you had The Sopranos and then you had The Wire on HBO, um, that really changed and then changed everything. And then, you know, you can think about something like Breaking Bad, um, yeah. you know, uh, uh, some years later. And even, even Mad Men, in a way, um, you know, it's not about drugs, but the main character is is uh, you know sort of morally uh, corrupt in a way that uh, hadn't always been the case in terms of a protagonist, but the Breaking Bad even even more so. Um, I mean, I think this idea of drugs and drug culture. Um, you go back to Nixon in the seventies. You can go back. You know, Katie, you mentioned uh, Nixon land the book, um, but you go back to Nixon, and there's a there's a bit of uh, footage with audio, um, which I hadn't seen when you took that class, but I've seen in recent years of Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon on a phone call uh, after, and I can't remember, I think it's the African delegation at the UN had, um, you know, blocked one of the resolutions they were trying to pass. Forgive me for not knowing all the details, but. Um, <laughs> trying to recall. And you can listen to Reagan, who was governor of California, calling up Nixon, who was president. And last night, I tell you, to watch that thing on television, as I, as I did, yeah. to see those, those monkeys from those African countries. 
says you know in essence these africans like you know they just got shoes last week um and here they are blocking us from you know what it is we're trying to accomplish um so you know the war on drugs actually started with nixon um, yeah and you know um reagan eventually becomes president and revives it so you know, the war on drugs, um, you know, even a guy like Bill Barr was George H.W. Bush's uh, attorney general. And he kind of pops up again, you know, with Trump. So as I said before, I think there's a line you can draw, um, you know, and it's further than Reagan. It, it starts with, with Nixon and what happened at the end of the 60s, early 70s. You mentioned Vietnam and, and First Blood. I mean, that film is one of the most misunderstood films ever because people hear Rambo and they think of this gung-ho Stallone character. The first film, that character is very different. You know, yeah. he's not this um, sort of mercenary. He's very different. Um, and they changed it. And then, you know, Reagan, I think, said something like in the spirit of Rambo, Reagan loved to quote, you know, that and Clint Eastwood. Um, it's just kind of interesting. You can look at this over decades. But, I mean, The Wire, I think, is one of the greatest examples ever of covering this environment and doing so in a way that was quite progressive. I mean, to me, the thing that always struck me about The Wire was the drug dealers were often more humane than the cops. And you hadn't seen that representation in, in film and television around the drug war. So The Wire, I think, was very important. And the thing about Miami Vice is, uh, film from that era when the wire was dominant, I think is an interesting way of sort of connecting the legacy. Yeah, yeah, it is really interesting to think about like the to ask so to sort of ask the question in 2006, like why now? You know, yes. why why revive Miami Vice now? And like, what is the urgent thing that needs to be expressed through this film, um, either about the drug war or what what's different what's new what's changed politically in the political landscape um and i don't know that i necessarily have a good answer to that but it's like an interesting question to ponder um like what was going on at that time that made man want to revisit it was it just that enough time had elapsed that he felt like he could return to this world in a really obviously very different way where he's actually like breaking um the the aesthetic that he had created uh with the show and then also you know with our podcast like we started doing this in 2020 and we managed to tap into this zeitgeist of people who have like started to really reappreciate the movie in a way that it was never appreciated when it came out and so it's sort of like i don't know i just keep thinking about all these eras it's like the it's like 20 years and 20 years of like you know, the show and then the movie and then people appreciating the movie. And it's just so interesting, these like long tail legacies. And even when we're talking about like political dynasties and political influence, how it all goes back to Nixon and then certain people who are in the administration who, um, you know, still have long lasting influence in, in American politics and 
how conservative politics like changes over time, but it also doesn't. So anyway, it's just, so, I, I don't know that I have a, a good answer to this, but it, I think it is a really like meaty, interesting question to sort of try to tangle with. Well, so, you know, you were, you were talking, I kept thinking about um, um, Roger Ailes, um, you know, who yeah. worked in the Nixon administration. And, you know, the 2000s is when, you know, Fox News really kind of solidifies um, their hold on the news and certainly conservative news. Um, you know, I mean, but Ailes was a guy who was, I think, a producer on the Mike Douglas show. Um, and then, you know, kind of advising Nixon originally on like media strategy. And then here he is like, you know, the head of Fox News, which is so transformative in terms of the way news was presented in the country. And, you know, I also think as you're talking about, you know, reboots, uh, sequels, uh, you know, I mean, that was early, but it's like, okay, you have an intellectual property. Yes. Um, <laughs> let's, you know, flip it. <laughs> so yeah. you had the television show. And by that point, it's like, what can we do with this? Um, mm -hmm. And then you make it a movie. I mean, you know, it used to be the case that maybe you had a, say, popular movie. And then after the movie, it sort of had its run. You might make a TV show based on that. But yes. here it was reversed. Um, you know, TV show was first, and then it's like all those years later, let's make a, a movie about it based on those same characters. I also wonder, as I'm thinking about what you were saying, how many people from how many people who had watched the television show were watching the movie? And how different is the experience if you watch the movie and you had no knowledge of the TV show? I wonder what that experience is like. And I actually think that this growing audience of uh, Miami Vice appreciators that we have uncovered and started <laughs> um, becoming attached to it, it is they are all like they never watched the, the TV show. No they're all the young. All. They're like they're in their 20s. And I think that they maybe have nostalgia for 2006 when they were kids. Okay. And and I think also they look at this movie that does not look anything like anything else that is being put out today and and saying, oh, my God, what is this? This is so, you know, it's so radical in its aesthetic with the cinematography. And um, and, and at the same time, it's like very, you know, the plot is completely abstract and we're morally going on it, vibes and impressions and um I think that they it's just something very different from what they are being, you know, given on Netflix or by Marvel. And so uh, for young cinephiles, I think they're like, oh, my God, uh, wow. <laughs> but okay, it is that, interesting because I think they don't have any connection to the show. And I think the people who do love the show struggle to love the movie. Yes. <laughs> It speaks to different constituencies. Then. <laughs> yes, constituencies is a good that, way. To that's put a it. fantastic way to put it. I was just like you both in sort of inspired a train of thought for me, trying to piece together to what Doctor Boyd was saying. Is like what was the intent? What did Michael Mann still have to say? And I think if we were if we were just specifically targeting your great thesis on you know the the reagan impact on drugs and how the original show was having a dialogue with everything that was happening with the war on drugs 
it's like at the time the show although it was like really complex i've, I've seen the show since in australia like it was on reruns and i saw it out of order when i was younger and have since gone back and watched it but when you watch it it, it is it is starting to have a little bit more heightened awareness. It is that cool show that's a bit more like Proto Sopranos, The Wire, where you've got conflicted mor- like morally, I, I guess, better moral representations of real human beings on a show that are dealing with situations. But I look at this and I'm like, I feel like Miami Vice 2006 is, look at what your war on drugs did. It just made it an industry. Like really? rather than like taking people out of jail, we've still got, all these different law organizations, all of which are corrupt. The movie is very explicit on the, the fact that people are paid off, people are um, in each other's pockets, people are paid off by these gigantic organizations. And all we did was create an industry of hostile people that are outside of our culture that come and exploit all of the inherent corruption of our culture. And I feel like that's a, if, if you were looking at that and sort of taking it back, that's a big macro theme of the entire film is like he's like look at the culture that we created all oh, this war on drugs it was so successful wasn't it you know now we're just funding these huge international organizations that are um that are that are running drugs and doing all this illegal stuff and that and there's still a whole bunch of people in jail for smoking a joint you know in the 80s you know what i mean like it's it's kind of shows its patent ridiculousness well two things um as you were talking i couldn't help but think of training day um yeah which is uh, another film from that era before the Miami Vice film. But, you know, the, the character that Denzel Washington plays, Alonzo. Um, I literally it, watched it last night, Dr. Boyd. It's so weird that you said that. I, I, oh, last, wow. last night, I, just out of the blue, I was finished watching Sport in Oz and my wife said, oh, I'm going to bed. I said, okay. And I just like went onto Netflix and I saw Training Day. I'm like, baby, strap me in. Let's go. We're watching this tonight. <laughs> And so uh, I literally watched it last night. I can't wait to hear what you have to say. Um, that's that's uh, that's interesting. Uh, you 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 sort of thought it up, thought it into existence. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, but if you look at Denzel Washington's character in that film, Alonzo, I mean, he's in one sense it's referring to the Rampart scandal in L.A. Yes. in the late '90s, but. Also, you think about that character. I mean, he's a product of all these things we're discussing. Yes. He's a cop, but he's a product of the war on drugs. Um, the impunity with which he operates through most of the film comes about because of this sort of tough on drugs uh, sentiment that was weaponized against you know poor black and brown people, um, you know, in ways that made that monster, you know created that monster. I mean, it's enjoyable to watch the film because he's just so out of control. Uh, but at the same time, um, you know, things at the end of the film, you know, this guy has to go, um, yes. you know. <laughs> and I remember um, I did a uh, did an event with Denzel. This was back in 2015. Um, and we were talking about Training Day and he said, you know, at one point they had the idea to do a sequel and he's like, no, this guy has to die. Like, I, I can't play this guy again. Like, <laughs> yes. There's no way he can live, you know, but you think about that and it's like, well, he got what was coming to him. But if you just think about that character um, and how much of a, you know, uh, uh, immovable force he had become, right? The operative line from that film, King Kong ain't oh, got, got shit. shit. He, oh, King Kong. And in yeah. some ways you can talk about that as a metaphor. That's what these institutions had become 
they were like King Kong. So when you get to the Miami Vice film a few years later, I think it's still part of the same era in which you can look back on what happened in the 70s or what happened in the 80s. And you realized maybe Scarface was a problem, but the institutions that attempted to uh, incarcerate him and people like him might have become a problem in and of themselves. Um, yes. And so I think in a lot of ways, Miami Vice speaks to that within the context of, you know, the series that started in the 80s, but you're able to look back on the 80s from a kind of 20 year vantage point and see all the damage. You know, I remember this moment, I mean, vividly because I was, I was so young and in the 80s, I mean, so many of my friends like, you know, got into the drug game um, and a lot of them got popped and, you know, some of them didn't survive. Some of them became dope fiends, you know, um, this was common. Like this is happening to me when I'm in college and, you know, some guy I knew and I see him and he's like driving a nice car and, you know, um, you know, his walks different and everything. <laughs> and then you start hearing rappers rap about this. Um, it was a whole lifestyle. Yes. And then by the time you get to maybe the 90s and Gary Webb and some of that information, I ran Contra. It's like there's a bigger picture. And so when you get to Miami Vice in 2006, you have all that history you can look back on. You couldn't do that in the 80s. Nah. Yeah. You, know, you would be looking forward and kind of speculating. Mm -hmm. There's no way to know. But in 2006, you can look back and look at you know, the sort of monster that had been created. Like I said, Alonzo's a monster, King Kong, but there's the bigger monster that's created from all these political decisions and, you know, policies. And um, by the 2000s, you're able to look back on it and assess it in a way you couldn't in the 80s. We'll be right back after this quick break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know what I think is so interesting because one of the reasons why I'm obsessed with Scarface and I think you maybe remember this or not but like I, I the the lasting sort of uh influence of Tony Montana's um ethos about life um the world is yours and then who takes it up like you see Nas taking up the Scarface imagery in his videos. Um, you see a lot of, you know, obviously the posters are like a huge thing in hip hop culture of, of Tony Montana. And then sort of, you know, women and girls taking up, and especially white women taking up the aesthetics of, of rap and of, uh, you know, the ethos of, of Scarface as well, um, or Tony Montana. But the thing that's so interesting about Miami Vice, the movie is like, 
the drug dealers, aside from Gong Li, are like boring, like <laughs> corporate guys. Yeah. Like you have, you know, uh, what's his name? I can never remember his name. The main guy. Archangel like, de Jesus Montoya. Yes, Archangel de Jesus Montoya. He's like a very, he's not Tony Montana. He's no. like a very classy, like elegant gentleman. And then you have- But also our... he's got that, he's got that edge, Katie, that, yeah. you know, that he can send you a card to your girl when he shouldn't know where A, a that you have a girl or B, where she lives. And he's like, salutations from your friends in the South. So he's kind of got that like, I could kill anyone in your family. Yeah, vibe. but it's <laughs> so, like subtle yeah. in a way. It's, it's not but extra, it is it's not danger. Extra, yeah. Yeah. And then you have um, Jose Yero, who's like the dorkiest middle <laughs> management guy, who's a disco guy. And but they're like, oh, he's coaching loco and all this stuff. But he's like just sort of like in an ugly shirt, like watching surveillance video in the club <laughs> and, you know, counting money and like being kind. It's just so interesting that that, that the depiction of the drug dealer. And I know that they're not, the drug dealers are not the subject of Miami Vice, like the, it's the vice cops who are the subject of Miami Vice, but um, that they, that it goes from this kind of cocaine cowboys, wild west thing to like, we're punching numbers and, you know, kind of making it less glamorous. <laughs> you know what, I, I remember, uh... I remember you making a comment about dudes uh, haircut in cocaine cowboys. Now, <laughs> what uh, did I say? <laughs> you, I don't remember. You were, you were clowning his mullet, I think. Um, <laughs> um, you just Sounds reminded like me of that. I would say. <laughs> you just brain. reminded me of that when you mentioned uh, cocaine cowboys, uh, which is, you know, from that same uh, time period. The yeah. Documentary. yeah. Um, you know, watching the TV show, I was talking to uh, someone recently about this um and i was talking about how much i enjoyed the cameos from the television show because the television show was known for having these really cool cameos i mean miles davis like i'm i'm good from i'm like <laughs> yeah. from, from there i'm good right but you know bill russell the great bill russell who passed away last year like nba legend um, but then you have, you know, G. Gordon Liddy or Bruce Willis before anybody knew who he yeah, was. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the, you know, the criminals in Miami Vice were always interesting. Yeah. And, you know, Rico and, and Sonny, you know, would do their thing. But like, who's the criminal? Clarence Williams III, you know, playing Legba. I mean, I remember <laughs> all of those like villains from the television show being really cool. And I also remember, you know, how many episodes of Miami Vice ended with Don Johnson, like just perplexed and, you know, <laughs> sort of morally overwhelmed by like what it was he was just doing. Um, you know, you get to the film and it feels like they have maybe gotten away from the colorful, like, you know, drug dealer or colorful sort of drug lord or criminal the figures who were on the television show were always very interesting. I mean, you know, Rico and Sonny were a constant, but who are they going against this week? Who are they trying to arrest? You know, who are they trying to capture? Um, I mean, it's often the case that a villain is more interesting than a hero. Yes. 
you know, I mean, one of the reasons that Training Day works so well is you basically have what's a B movie otherwise without Denzel Washington's presence. But in that movie, he gets to bring his like acting ability and movie star charm to the kind of character you could very easily see as a much lower budget, smaller movie. Um, and I think a lot of actors enjoy playing villainous characters because there's more room to to act. Yes, um, yeah. And I think, you know, that's one of the points of um, Miami Vice that was criticized. I remember reading something at the time it came out and the cat who played, uh, was it Carlos Euro? Um, Jose, Jose Euro, yeah, John. Um, Jose Euro, okay. Yeah, Jose John, Ortiz. And, John Ortiz. And, yeah. and dude, someone, I can't remember who wrote this, but I remember I was reading a review and someone said he looked like a graduate student. <laughs> not a graduate student. <laughs> Somebody said he looked like a, you know, he had the beard and the glasses. And uh, I'm like, yeah, that's not the most intimidating image. <laughs> it kind of fit. Like, you know, the description seemed to fit, which is very different again. And I mean, you know, I never had much love for Bruce Willis beyond Miami Vice, but the role he played in Miami Vice is incredible. Uh, he's one of the most incredible. Uh, antagonist that you know existed in that show um, as well as others so by the film I feel like that's kind of a missed opportunity yeah I I, I just dialed up as you were talking Dr. Boyd of the there's so many wikis dedicated to Miami Vice guest stars so like Bruce Willis was in a um was Tony Amato an arms dealer in No Exit you had like Bert Young, there's Pam Greer, there's, you know, Michael T. Williamson, Bruce McGill, Eartha Kitt. Like, this is just in two seasons. Miles Davis, Clarence Williams III. Like, these are all um, huge. Phil Collins even comes <laughs> comes in. G. Gordon Liddy. Like, this is season two. Ted Nugent. Unbelievable. Leonard Cohen. Unbelievable. That's what? just two Leonard seasons. Cohen? Two oh seasons. It's two seasons. I, mean, they, not I, remember, I remember they were trying to get uh, George H.W. Bush to be uh, to do a cameo. It didn't work, but they were trying. Lee I. Oh, Lee I. Coco, you know, was yeah. was in Miami Vice. I don't know if that name means anything now, but I only know I only know it from Ford, Ford versus, versus Ferrari. Ferrari. <laughs> in because the it's 80s, played... I. Coco, I. Coco was a big deal in the eighties. Uh, honestly, you know, as I sit here and think about it, I'm kind of surprised Trump was not in Miami Vice. I That's mean, a really he, good point. He had yes. that kind of, you know, notoriety in the 80s that he would have been someone they probably, I can't imagine they tried and he said no, but, you know, um, I, he wouldn't I'm say not no. surprised he was never in an episode. He was in Home Alone too. Uh, well, <laughs> so, like, he's not above saying yes to a cameo. <laughs> well, this, I mean, you know, uh, imagine the kind of role he could have played in Miami Vice. Um, oh, my God. Imagine that. Oh, my God. We could probably, it's like a butterfly effect thing. Like, maybe he would have, like, discovered a love for acting and none of this would have ever happened. <laughs> <laughs> or um, I, I himself. I know. Well, I, I just keep seeing these clips of him on the doing his rallies. And I'm like, this is just his open mic night set. It's not it's just him uh, clowning on Chris Christie and like doing roast jokes, not to, you know, get 
too far off the track, but uh, but, I, but it's just ridiculous. You know, I think the thing about that is, um, if it were not so dangerous, it would be funny. Exactly, yes. exactly. We didn't know that it could have any consequences at the time. We were all laughing at it before, but now we've had some experience, so it's a bit like, no, 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 we don't do that again. Um, but also, he's not above, um, he's not above, like having involvement in movies. The Devil's Advocate is something that I recently talked about in one of our other shows. And the the apartment of the New York real estate mogul who kills his wife and has an affair with his stepdaughter is Trump's apartment. And he let them shoot the movie in there if he could have dinner with Al Pacino. Oh, my God. <laughs> Yeah, it speaking really of does. Scar- speaking of Scarface, come back all Scarface. the way back yeah. to Scarface. It's like he let them shoot the Devil's Advocate scenes in that disgusting, gaudy apartment of his, so that he could hang out with Al Pacino. It really does seem like a strange uh, thing that he was never a guest star in Miami Vice. This oh if you consider the guest list and you know his his visibility in the eighties, it's kind of surprising. Really yeah. surprising. You know, that was always the thing was who's going to be the guest star this week. Um, You know, what I remember about the television show also is it came on Friday night. And, um, you know, at that time I was in the street. So it's like (laughs) Friday night I'm going out. Uh, but I would stay home and watch my advice and then go out afterwards. That's that's nice. the pull that show had. Wow. <laughs> you had to watch it, you know. I mean, different now, you can record things or whatever, watch whenever you want on demand. But at the time, you know, you kind of had to be there to watch it. And so it's like, okay, we're going out, but we're going to watch my advice first. There's a there's a very embarrassing story, which I should tell you, Dr. Boyd, is that I when I was playing uh, football in Australia, a w- rugby union was one of our sports. I remember being in a bunch of tough guys, multi-ethnic, you know, you know, sort of Anglo Aussies and like Islanders and stuff like that, all playing rugby union, like what the All Blacks and the Wallabies play. And so we we're playing rugby union. And I remember the tough group of guys I was with demanding the coach going, coach, we've got to finish. We've got to get home to watch the OC. And because we were all like 18, 19. And so the guys would all go home to watch the OC and like, we'd all be like training and weights and hitting and tackling each other. And then it's like, coach, can we please go like the OCs? We've got to get out of here. Like we'll come back, you know, we'll do we'll start earlier, but the OCs on, we, we're going to miss it. It's and I've, I've, it's my favorite memory of all these like tough guys who like everyone would imagine is like, oh yeah, these burly <laughs> brutes and all they want to do is go home and watch their, 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 their show before they, uh, before they, uh, finish the week but it must have been pretty surreal like being in florida so you were in florida yes when miami vice was on and you're sort of living you're seeing you know friends of yours get maybe caught up in drugs or dealing or whatever is going on and the show is on like did you feel like yes this is capturing something that's happening and it's reflecting it back to me or were you like that's not getting it right or like what was what was it that that immediacy must have been kind of interesting to take in well i think it started with scarface you know mm. so and for me i it's hard for me to think about miami vice without scarface um mm. because scarface was really this kind of transformative moment in my life and i learned later you know how transformative it was for so many other people in my generation. 
Um, you know, I told someone this story recently about one night a group of us were going someplace um, and, you know, VCRs and VHS tapes were fairly new, but, you know, they were kind of making their, you know, inroads into uh, American domestic life. And somebody had a VHS of Scarface. I hadn't seen it at the theater. Um, and, you know, there's a group of guys and we're going out and everybody's at various stages of getting ready. And somebody put the film in. I'm like, what is this? And they're like, oh, this is Scarface. So as I'm waiting, I just sit down and start watching it. And when it's time to go, I say, I'll catch up with you later. I want to finish watching this. I didn't realize how long it was. Um, and as I sat there, I'm like, this movie's really like speaking to me. Um, and the thing about Scarface is, you know, eventually when you get to like MTV Cribs and everybody has a Scarface <laughs> poster in their house, Scarface is a cautionary tale. Yes. Like, you're not supposed to be imitating Tony Montana because, you know, he got high on his own supply and, and you know, basically it's his own fault what happened to him at the end of the mm -hmm. film. But I think a lot of people watched that movie and they just ignored the ending. Um, they like, I'm Tony Montana, I'm bigger than life, you know, et cetera. But it's like, nobody wants to end up the way Tony Montana ends up in that film. So yeah. as much as I could appreciate Tony Montana, the character of Sosa was the one who I thought, okay, Sosa, you know, his emotions are under control. He means business. Tony crossed him, he's got to pay the price. So from that to Miami Vice, like uh, maybe a year or so later, you know, so much of the show was about style. Yes. You know, from fashion to music to cars. And it was, you know, as people say now, it was a vibe. You know, if you started trying to make sense of the plot, you know, you'd be struggling a lot of times because it didn't make sense. But it just looked cool and it felt cool and it felt like you were part of this world and so i think the sort of move from what was happening in the street to what was happening on screen it was almost like there was no line of distinction between the two people wanted to be scarface people wanted to be rico tubbs or sonny crockett people wanted to drive that you know ferrari testarossa um you know people started dressing um, uh, you know, like Rico and Sonny. Um, so I think in a lot of ways, it was a moment when, what would you say, life imitating art, art imitating life. Yes. The connection between watching the show and what was going on, it's like our life is a movie. And I think you could say that really through the 90s into the 2000s as hip hop blew up. Yeah. People are rapping about this and it's real. You know, one of the aesthetics of hip hop, of course, is realism, the dominant aesthetic. So it's real. And so it was a TV show. Scarface was a movie, but it felt like real life. Now, when you look back on it, you know, I mean, Al Pacino playing a Cuban with that accent. <laughs> it's hilarious, you know, but you've been watching it so long, you just accept it. Um, it looks over the top. I was here, I was listening to an interview with Brian De Palma. I think it's in the, the documentary on De Palma from the last three or four years. And 
I'm not I'm not a De Palma fan by any stretch of the imagination. I think what's great about Scarface is what the audience made of the film, maybe more mm. so than the film itself. And so somebody said, uh, De Palma says, you know, they came to me and they said, would you consider recutting the film with a hip hop soundtrack? And he's like, no, and his no is a very dismissive no. And I thought, well, it's your film and I can appreciate maybe you don't want to do that, but hip hop made the film. Yeah, like yeah. if not for hip hop, we wouldn't still be talking about Scarface now. So yeah. I would say with that and Miami Vice, just that moment for me felt like this movie and this TV show is reflecting what's going on in real life, but it just looks cool because style is so important. You know, yes. Tony Montana, he's bigger than life, right? Um, when you get to Miami Vice, like, who wouldn't want to drive that car? Um, you know, Lamborghini Contas, like, you know, Kanye referenced that, like, so many years later, and nobody <laughs> knew what he was talking about. Like, so, <laughs> it was just, if you were into all that, and that was just paraphernalia to drug culture, who can afford that unless you're slinging dope, like, and yeah. at a major level, like, you know. But it was about that kind of style in all facets. And I think in a way it kind of was something like maybe a filter on what was happening in real life. Maybe if you look back at it now, it doesn't feel that way, but that's how I remember it feeling at that time. Yeah, that's so interesting that you're like, this feels real, but it's looks cool. And so it's refracting it back to us in a way that that is, you know, a different experience, but it's also making culture at the same time, which is I think why we continually talk about these movies. But I also think that the Scarface of it all is really interesting because it did become such a aesthetic uh, that was sort of divorced from the actual message of the movie, like you were saying. Like, we don't want to emulate Tony Montana. He ends up, you know, riddled with bullets at the end. And um, but that image of him in the bathtub becomes this iconic image that people, you know, attach to divorced of context. And I always think Scarface is this like um, existential creed core about capitalism because you have this person who comes in as an outsider and, and is not allowed to exist in the capitalist system of the United States because of his racial identity, his nationality, which ties back to the 1933 Scarface with the Italian immigrants, but, um, and so he has to go outside the system, but then he gets what he wants. My favorite scene in Scarface is when he's at the dinner table and he's like, look at you, look at this. Everybody's just eating shit and getting fat. And like, you can't even have a baby. And he's yelling at Michelle, um, Pfeiffer and, and, um, you see him have this like like this is what i've worked for and i've gotten everything i've wanted and it's nothing and it's bullshit and it just like all crumbles for him so i think it's like a cautionary tale of capitalism i mean the epigraph at the beginning of the film what does it profit a man to gain the world and lose his own soul you know yeah and we have to i think give oliver stone props for that script um because Stone is able to make this more than I think even the original Scarface yeah. by linking it to, you know, 
um, the Mariel boat lift by linking it to all of these historical issues. And Tony Montana, you're right. Like, you know, I mean, in some ways that's always the challenge when you're going uphill and you're pursuing something, what happens when you get it? Yeah. Um, you know, he had all this energy, this infectious energy. Uh, you know, my scene is when he's washing dishes and, um, you know, it's like, I, I can't do this. He's looking across the street and he sees these people lined up, you know, to go in the club and he's, he's washing dishes. Um, he doesn't want to be there, right? So he's motivated. That's the American dream. But yes. the next thing you know, he's dropping his entire face in a mound of cocaine. <laughs> and, you know, don't get high on your own supply. He violated the rule. Yeah. He pays the price. So, I mean, you could say... Tony Montana was doing too much. But when people look at that film, a lot of times they ignore that. And they just look at him when he's in the tub. Who do I trust? Me. That's who. They look at that. I mean, that's a powerful scene. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, but you have to realize by the end of the film, he's lost his mind. And yeah. particularly that whole sequence with his sister, um, I mean, he's really doing too much. Um, so <laughs> it's like, as much as the film goes out of its way to make you see this guy as basically a clown by the end of the film, I think people ignore that and they just focus on, you know, what he's doing to Frank Lopez or what he's doing to get on top. Um, but it's not a film that celebrates him, even though I think a lot of people who read it look at it that way. Yeah. Well, I, always, I just always think it's so interesting how a film is made and with a certain intention, but it's never what it actually is, is like the relationship between the people who watch it and what they put onto the film itself. So it's it's interesting to interrogate those like intentions versus affect, I guess. And um, that's kind of what we do here at this podcast. too. Yeah. Exactly. And I think firstly, Brian De Palma, why couldn't there be a hip hop edit? Like just release it on another Blu-ray or 4k. I just bought 4k Scarface. I've owned this movie like 27 times. Um, <laughs> I just bought it like the other day. So why not? Um, the culture would totally embrace it. And there's one last thing, which is that Pacino was once asked about Scarface, you know, you know, would you ever be happy or sad if it was remade? And he goes, no, I think it should be remade for every generation. Yes. Like, and I, lo I always love that quote. Cause it was very insightful and very kind of, humble of like no like i was captured on part of the zeitgeist the story was told i was an outsider coming into america to try and snatch the american dream and the cautionary tale of you know being intoxicated by capitalism getting high on your own supply and then coming crashing to earth and so yeah i it's strange to me that for such a gigantic property that it's never been attempted to be remade again because ultimately it was a there, remake. there was a talk a couple of years ago antoine fuqua doing yeah a, uh remake of it and i don't know the status of that but um you know in some ways that is such an 80s movie that yes. maybe like you know miami vice the tv show if you're going to make it into a film 20 years later you you either you know commit fully to a 80s remake or you do something different yeah uh, because when i think of scarface i mean that movie so epitomizes that era Yes. I don't know if it resonates the same way in a different era. And something, you know, Katie was saying, 
you know, which I've always talked about the role of the audience, um, you know, in making Scarface a film that people would go and see in the theaters 20 years later when they did the re-release. This is a three hour movie that's, yeah. you know, 20 years old and they were doing screenings all over the country and the screenings were sold out. Um, so, you know, it's like, that's how much love there was for the film. And a lot of that was built up just from people watching it on VHS who mm -hmm. didn't see it in the theaters. So it had a, like a second life yeah. because of the way the audience embraced it. And there are occasions, I think, when an audience um, can connect to something and it can mean something different, not only than what it was intended to mean, but maybe from what it meant when it was originally released. Yeah. And uh, I just have to say, so they can only remake Scarface in 2033 because they have to be 50 year chunks <laughs> in between every episode of Scarface. So there was 1933, 2033 right. is when they right. when they're allowed right. to make when Scarface they're allowed, again. When, when Katie will be policing it until that very day. Look, Anton uh, Fuqua, you have to wait until 2033. <laughs> <laughs> or whoever is going to do it. Ten so, years. Yes. Dr. Boyd, thank you so much. Um, it's a pleasure to meet you, even though it's virtually. Um, and it's such an honor to have you on the show. And uh, it's just been truly a, a massive highlight so i just want to say thank you so much for coming on and teaching us um it's been it's been a treat i feel completely spoiled katie thank you for making this happen yes dr boyd thank you so much for coming on the podcast i know it's been a long time in the making and thank you for showing me miami vice for the first time well you're both welcome and uh i'm glad that somebody remembered and appreciated uh, me showing that film and <laughs> continued the legacy um into the present so uh uh, you know, you are welcome. And this was fun to talk about. Um, I'm glad that we got a chance to do it. Not only Miami Vice, but so many of these other films. Um, you know, it's great to be able to uh, talk about, you know, these films and the sort of larger social and political issues um, because it's much bigger than the film. Yes. You know? I mean, I think a lot of people probably say, you know, oh, Miami Vice, the movie, like, but it's bigger than the movie. Um, and so, you know, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's important for us to, like, get this political context as well for our listeners and for the discussions we've been having. So we appreciate you bringing your perspective on that. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.